the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now, back to Lifeline. All right, we are back. All the lines are cleared out, too. So um, the lines are open. one 367 If you had a question or a comment or an observation you wanted to make with yours, truly, Jesse Giston, be glad to hear from you. Um, if you want to uh, contribute to our present topic, you may do so. you just got some issues going on, and you want to... Uh, Get some pastoral advice. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. We got a whole hour to engage one another at this present time. So give me a call. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. While you are calling, I want to kind of expand a bit more on uh, my conversation with uh, Jermaine in terms of. Um, yeah, how we how we look at our world and its present functioning under the curse of sin, and recognizing that God still is amazingly uh, merciful uh, and gracious to us in His general kindness to humanity, to not let things fall apart. We know that the Bible is clear that presently God is upholding. All things by the word of his power. In fact, it's Jesus that's upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. And according to Colossians, he is maintaining everything in a consistency of coherence. Colossians 1 15. Um, a consistency of coherence so that not one molecule, not one atom, not one quartz, not one subatomic particle is operating in such a radical way that it's disturbing the balance of the uh, complex, this complex uh, universal system that we operate out of. You and I are living and moving and having our being in God. You and I are reasoning, rationalizing, we are talking, we are engaging. And we might be honest enough to say that we are also, to some degree, at least spiritually thriving even in the midst of difficulty. So what David would say is the whole earth is full of the glory of the Lord. And, 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 and David knew something about trouble. So he wasn't avoiding the reality of, uh, of difficult things. He was just simply affirming the fact that um, when we look at the world through the eyes of Christ, the eyes of the word of God, as dark as the day is, as difficult as the trials may be, if we stand back and exercise a level of objectivity, we can say God has still been gracious to us on a, a innumerable uh, number of levels. And, and so the child of God is to walk with a level of optimism and uh, expectation that allows us to glorify God in our observation of what's going on. Secondly, again, uh, the, our world is going to discover that God was altogether wise when he took the nation of Israel and brought them through the wilderness out of Egypt, out of Egypt's plagues, out of Egypt's culture, out of Egypt's behavior patterns, uh, 
out of Egypt's diet to make them a healthy enough people that when they entered into the promised land, their their uh, immune systems would be high, at least for the first uh, decade or so. Um, you know, for at least 40 years almost, because Joshua definitely dominated the land of Canaan. Uh, Joshua being a great type of the Lord Jesus Christ and the epic of Joshua in the land of Canaan with the rulers of Israel, they dominated everything, was a, a type and pattern of the New Testament age when Messiah came so that he went about doing good, healing all that were sick and ill, liberating sinners from bondage, demonic and uh, sinful, so that the gospel prevailed for three and a half years under the ministry of, of Christ. Uh, and um, and so it was in the promised land. But once the children of Israel started becoming enamored by the false gods of the indigenous uh, cultures around them, then they opened themselves up to the dietary system, food system, as well as the demonic influence of the cultures. And, uh, and God let them suffer from it. He let them suffer from it. In this gospel age, we are not bound, per se, to the dietary restrictions of national Israel because that nation was a conduit for one reason, the coming of Jesus Christ. Please understand that. The Jews are no special people uh, be outside of their covenant purpose for bringing Israel into the for bringing Christ into the world. They are human beings like us, not super people. Uh, all not, all ethnic groups have gifts. All ethnic groups have uh, skill sets. We all have something to bring to the table because we are all created in the Imago Day, all created in the image of the one true and living God and his son, Jesus Christ. So all ethnic groups have something to bring to the table, but not all ethnic groups have walked in covenant relationship with God. Not all ethnic groups have had the spirit of the living God to guide them practically and communally in relationship with God so that God seals his people. So some ethnic, ethnic groups are going to live a much more uh, horrifically cursed life than other ethnic groups. That's just a consequence of violating God's laws. If you live in the uncleanness and uh, lack of hygieno awareness culture of drugs and alcohol and sharing needles and uh, drinking from uh, people's uh, liquid resources or eating from their plates, and they are uh, behaving in fashions that are absolutely uh, counterproductive uh, hygienally and biologically, you're going to suffer consequences. That's just the nature of it. You find people who have an understanding and awareness of the importance of a hygieno framework, then those people are going to be eating better, they're going to be engaging more wisely, and they're going to uh, have the outcome and benefit of a more hygienally uh, consistent lifestyle. That is the New Testament term, hygienally, hygiano, from which we get the term sound doctrine. And whenever Jesus healed someone, they became hygienally sound. Go thy way, your faith has made you whole. And so the believer, when we press into knowing Christ as we ought to know him, we ought to be naturally guided by a navigation system within spiritually that leads us to a healthier lifestyle, to a healthier gospel framework comprehensively. In other words, that we might be able to understand that our walk spiritually has to be healthy, our walk socially has to be healthy, our walk emotionally has to be healthy, our walk, walk practically has to be healthy. I mean, you are the temple of the living God, and, and God's spirit dwells in you. 
And so without turning it into legalism and self-righteousness and getting into taboos of mysticism or neo, uh, what I would call neo-Judaism, because a lot of people create false gospels out of eating this, eating that, not eating this and not eating that. We don't want to do that. Don't destroy the centrality of, of the redemptive work of Christ. Know how to walk in your freedom, but also know how to walk in uh, responsibility with your freedom. And you're probably going to live the best life that you could, uh, given the, the uh, uh, predetermined purposes of God for your life. I've got two lines open, one 888 367 if you want to join the conversation. Let me go to line one and talk with Mark from Walnut Creek. Mark, are you there? Hey, Jesse, how you doing? I'm good. What's up, man? Yeah, I totally agree with you about the uh, healthy lifestyle. But um, one of the things I hear, I hear like an agenda behind this, I call it the pandemic, um, is they're pushing vaccines. I even hear from my pastor, like hoping a vaccine. And I don't take vaccines. I've followed you back when they are doing the SB276, when they are putting vaccines on our kids. Absolutely. I, don't, I just don't, I don't have any peace about that. There's nothing healthy about them to me. And I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. Right. I'm looking forward to having a little bit more of an updated um, approach to that. I've got a number of p good people in my in my own family, you know, that we we, we kind of um, investigate uh, the vaccines, the upcoming vaccines and things of that nature. The vaccines are going to continue. They are, um, you know, in many ways, I, I agree with you, Mark, they are Trojan horses for a an experimental process that has occurred in the human race, particularly uh, in, in Europe and in America, that basically is, is, is planned obsolescence. I talked about that years ago, and, and, and we know this is true, even though you're going to get doctors on the left arguing against doctors on the right who are very much aware of the capability of cocktail solutions being called um, uh, uh, vaccines that are designed to, to ward off, you know, particular prevailing uh, viruses and diseases, yet the, uh, the, the net, out, uh, net outcome and consequences of many of these vaccines are definitely questionable, if not utterly and totally harmful. And we know that statistically. I mean, I just know that factually from many people who have had their children take the vaccine and right away impact their kids and destroy their minds and, and, and create such a loss of healthy immune system that we know that, you know, that they're, you know, they're, they're shooting in the dark with a lot of this stuff. But every time there's a crisis, as you know, Mark, that element of the beast system will always employ opportunities that would look like they're coming to rescue when all they're coming to do is um, explore and experiment knowing that there will be collateral damage in the lives of people with whom they explore and they experiment. And we know that it has a, uh, has a fallacy of logic when you think about people around the world who live and are healthy and die not ever having ever had a vaccine. And so, you know, there you go. I wish the arguments would be brought up front on both sides of the table and clearly laid out before the American people so that we can understand that um, that there is a sleight of hands that 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 takes place when it comes to all of these vaccines. In the matter. I don't want to be told I can't work, can't go to church, can't get a driver's license unless I'm vaccinated. That's kind of the premise I hear him talking about. Okay, so now I know that. And so one of the things that we're going to probably be, well, I, I get you, man. One of the things we're going to be working through is 
uh, I, I, what I love about the Christian faith is that, you know, you don't have just kind of like normal dumb people like me. Uh, you got brilliant scientists and brilliant uh, lawyers and brilliant uh, philosophical minds who know how to argue uh, fallacy of arguments. They know how to dissect propositions and they know how to actually detect, you know, uh, uh, logical fallacies that are often employed in, in, in uh, informal arguments on the part of scientists and doctors. And those persons will rise to the level of uh, notoriety and begin to de debate uh, the authorities around the legitimacy of the claims that will occur because Christians endemically we we endemically know that we cannot just succumb to government decrees without the government being able to legitimately establish the uh, right righteous uh, premise for what they're doing even with the uh, with the uh, present situation of uh, shelter for cover and uh, quarantining. They're pushing the envelope on our, our uh, freedom of assembly. So what's happening is we're being careful, as we ought to, about, you know, um, making sure that we don't justify them in terms of gathering together carefully, uh, carelessly. But at some point, uh, we're going to have to move up out of this kind of nose diving into economic devastation by no businesses being open and nobody working and nobody, uh, well, at least massive amounts of people are absolutely horrifically harmed by this. So something's going to change in a month. And uh, and we will be looking at constitutional rights and, uh, you know, the amendments and, and how they play a role in our freedoms, because uh, if there's one good benefit with our Constitution, I think you would agree with me on that, is that the founding fathers, no matter who they had in mind as a primary object of benefiting from the Constitution, they understood the absolute right of uh, freedom of speech, freedom of arms, freedom of assembly, uh, and the need to acknowledge and worship the true and the living God. So the state can kind of incrementally move in and try to be fascist all they want, but what they're going to end up getting is a real pushback on the part of citizens that only know freedom. That's what's going to happen. So you can be sure that will come down the line if if our authorities started, start getting really uh, out of hand with this. I appreciate you, Jesse. All right, bless you. I got to take a break. I think, yep, I do. I have to take a break. When I come back, I'll deal with you, Sean, and deal with you, Travis. Two lines open, one 367 See, the problem with our government, <laughs> our people are used to freedom. Which I'm just telling you now, and they know it too. The government pushes on us like uh, the proverbial frog in a in a kettle, and they can get a lot out of us. They can get us to bend over in a, in, into a pretzel, but p keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. Uh, again, I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we're back. The time six twenty-eight on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Let's go to line number two and talk with Sean from Redland. Sean, are you there? Hi, Pastor Jesse. I'm here. How are you? What's What's going on, man? Holler at me. Um, hanging in there. Hanging in there. Yeah, I was calling. Um, just to uh, I had a I had a question. Um, I've been tracking with you through the series on the Book of Revelation, and it's been just great teaching. It's been awesome. Um, really good stuff. Amen. And I'm, I, I heard you mention, I think it was um, earlier this week, or earlier, late, sometime last week in one of the teachings, you, you had mentioned um, Christ's work being 
um, seen in the first five days of Revela- of Genesis. Yeah, definitely. The, the, the five-day creation. Um, I've, I've actually been, um, I, and I was going to ask you why, why five days. Um, like, I was, I've been actually tracking through Genesis for, for a while, and um, and I, I believe the Lord was showing me something in it, but I wanted, I really value your, your opinion and your view. So mm-hmm. I wanted to see what, how you came to the five days, because what, what I believe the Lord has shown me is that in those first seven days of creation, um, you can see the whole, the, the, the incarnation, the life, death, ascension, uh, reign of Christ, and going forth to all the nations, and the gathering of the church, and then the day six would be the fullness of his bride coming in, and then day seven would be the eternal rest that we enter into post-history, you know. Um, but I was just curious how, like, where the five-day came from, like, where right. what we're going to get into with that. Right. I think what I was doing back then when I was dealing with, I, I think I was dealing with the number uh, six, seven, and eight, right? Um, I was explaining the diminished uh, connotation of the number six, uh, never arriving at the number seven, which is the number of perfection, and the number eight of being additional grace, because I was setting us up for this Friday study, dealing with the uh, with the third day, the third day. So I really was bracketing uh, the Genesis narrative uh, and and looking really at at the uh, um, at the uh, first five days when I was studying the Genesis narrative in 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 order to explain to us the difference between cardinal numbers and ordinal numbers and how they are to be employed. I just threw out in passing, if you recall, that there is a rich redemptive process that's laid out in the Genesis narrative, particularly uh, Davids 1 through 5. But what I meant was this, and, and I, would, I, would, I would say that there have been a few really good interpreters who have, who have been able to maintain a healthy redemptive hermeneutic and Christocentric application of the seven-day creation narrative. I wouldn't even begin to argue that we're not dealing with gospel all the way through. You know that. Um, But that would have been just kind of in a general uh, application of the uh, creation narrative. So like what I said Tuesday, if you recall, if we were to take day one and apply the 24-hour principle cycle to it, which actually did not begin until day four. But if we were to apply it, knowing that God said six days he labored and on the seventh day he rested, then we would have to conclude, and I'm sure you know, that God started his process of creation on Sunday, right? Right. And so what I did was I'm, I'm nurturing the saints around how to understand the first day and the eighth day as being two sides of the same coin, um, and, and then God kind of inherently places that in the uh, Genesis narrative, day one, day two, day three, and day four, because um, on day four, what you have now is the timekeepers that come into play that actually rule over the day and rule over the night. The timekeepers coming into play, ruling over the day and ruling over the night, now gives us the structure uh, for the... Um, for the teleological development of the redemption plan that get, gets laid out in verse one, two, and day one, two, and three, because day one, two, and three, as I'm going to talk a little bit about Friday, maybe, as I'm doing some other stuff in terms of the atonement that's, I think, are rich, I may be able to get it in. God starts off with the creation of chaos, and he starts off with darkness as a presupposition to his division 
of night and day. And so he doesn't start talking about good until he defines good by virtue of the light that's laid out in that second day principle. And so when I talked about uh, the first five days, what I was really dealing with was God putting all the pieces together for the redemptive analogy leading up to the establishing of the timekeepers. And subsequent to that, the, uh, uh, the fifth day moving into the uh, creation of the sea animals, the sixth day, the creation of the land animals along with Adam. Uh, and then the seven day resting. I'm dealing kind of with a, a, a chiasm there that I, I would have to take time to develop. But I would not argue at all that um, you have a full uh, trajectory of development of redemptive reality leading all the way up to the rest, the seven day rest. To me, that is an absolutely consistent hermeneutic and interpretation of the whole scheme of the new creation paradigm typified in that Genesis narrative. So I didn't want to throw you off by that. I probably should have been a little bit more careful in terms of just tossing that out. What I wanted the saints to be able to understand is the importance of uh, ordinal numbers, day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, and therefore uh, the number six, seven, and eight, uh, as we are dealing with it in the Revelation series, <clears throat> playing a role in the work of Christ, the rest of Christ, and then the redemption that you and I experience in the additional grace paradigm that flows out of his resurrection uh, on the first day. So um, I, I hope that didn't throw you off. I know you're doing your studies and you're, 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 you're learning how and developing good redemptive pictures there, which is always the best way to go, in my opinion. Uh, knowing Christ and seeing him in the volume of the book is what we're called to do. So what say ye on that? Uh, yeah, amen. Amen to all that. Yeah, I appreciate the explanation. Um, I, 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 the whole teaching on the ordinal numbers and the cardinal numbers, I hadn't ever heard before, and it was a blessing. It was so good. And I was just like, okay, well, how does, how, I, I'm trying to process how, to, how that fits into the, 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 the seven-day creation of the whole redempt, all of redemptive history fit into that seven-day creation. And, and that okay, is like so, so, so for, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead on. No, and, and, and that is like a primer to, to, to interpreting the rest of the Bible, in a sense. You know, like, like it, it, every, every redemptive truth about the Lord that's in the Scriptures is going to fit into the categories of the seven days, whether it be his, his, his ascension or his, his, his passion or his resurrection. You know, and so, um, but no, I, I, understand, I understand where you're coming from with the ordinal numbers, and I, I, I received it, it. You know, I, I, I thought it was an amazing teaching. Absolutely. So here's what I would say with that, just as a rule, because we'll get back into it when we get into the book of Revelation a little bit deeper. I've got a number of principles I got to lay out before I put these different uh, eschatological frameworks. So that's what a lot of people are waiting for, quite frankly. They're waiting for me to talk about positions eschatologically. But before I do that, I really want to make sure that the people who are tracking with me in the book of Revelation know how to see the supremacy of Christ, his absolutely rule, absolute rule over everything, and his response to the wicked against his bride in the book of Revelation. If I fail to get that across as an overarching theme, then it really doesn't matter if we begin to speculate on premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, preterism, or whatever the case may be. All of those structures, to me, 
mean nothing uh, if if Christ is not really the aim uh, of exaltation in those texts. So I'm taking my time simply because I believe that God has given us this window to study together, and thousands of people are studying with us to help them see Jesus in these uh, snippets in the book of Revelation and um, and then begin to um, understand, you know, the bigger framework and why I would argue for the position that I do over against others. There are some good strengths in all of them in certain ways, and then there's some dangers in a few that I really want to get at down, down the line. But let me say this before I let you go, Sean. If you think through ordinal numbers and cardinal numbers, what you get to do with uh, the first and second and third is place them as trifectors. And what I mean by first, second and third, it could be four, fifth, sixth or seventh as well. You get to place them over against your cardinal number framework and determine uh, how those ordinal numbers will play a redemptive framework too. It simply becomes a second lens for you. For instance, I'll just give you one. The whole New Testament presupposes that Christ rose on what day? The third. The third day. It doesn't say Sunday. It doesn't say Saturday. It doesn't say Friday. That was never the vocabulary in Scripture because yeah. Sunday, Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are all pagan holidays, as you and I know, right? Uh, pagan, mm-hmm. pagan gods, pagan gods. So, uh, and, and we don't have a problem with it, but God just didn't use pagan gods to define his days. He defined his days numerically, ordinally, and cardinally. And so the people of Israel had to understand Sabbat. They had to understand Shabbat. They had to understand first day, eighth day. They had to understand uh, uh, weeks of years. They had to understand prophetic prophetic 30-day cycles. They had to understand all this in order to operate in the creation narrative from a prophetic standpoint. They had a complete holistic system of, of calculating time and calculating uh, uh, cr- the creation uh, relationship between the sun, moon, and the earth from a purely uh, prophetic standpoint. They did a good job in some areas. In some other areas, they, 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 they missed it. They, they def- definitely didn't know how. The Jewish people didn't know how to fully see Christ, and therefore they collapsed under a more uh, a legalistic approach to Torah as being, you know, wisdom and Torah being life and Torah being the end all. And as a consequence, they didn't know how to deal with uh, colliding uh, holidays and and clashing Sabbath days and conflicting uh, feast days. They didn't know how to deal with that because they failed to see that the key to harmonizing those would have been two realities. One is, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. Secondly, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. If they would have held those two hermeneutical principles in tandem, they would have been able to resolve some of the uh, some of the misdatings and um, and calculations that they they had to kind of fudge, which is what people that are really given over to numbers do. That's kind of one of the things I warned about because Mr. Camping, that's some of you guys might know, was just given over to fatuation with numbers and didn't know how to rein it into a biblical framework and maintain 
objectivity when it comes to interpreting the scripture and made a number of assumptions that led to his demise. And so what we want to be able to do is frame it in ways that exalt Christ that allow for either explicit establishment of those numbers cardinally or ordinally um, or by good uh, implicit principles that would necessarily lead to outcomes like this one. Here's an implicit outcome. We know when we do the numbers right and we understand the historical data around the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the ministry of John the Baptist, the uh, prophecies of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, and a few others, that Christ definitely was crucified on Friday morning. He was Sabbathing on Friday evening on the Sabbath, according to Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, law and time, uh, on that particular pre-Passover uh, uh, week that would, that would come up and rose again on on Sunday, which you and I know is called biblically the third day, the third day. And that's the way the New Testament affirms it. This is what I'm going to be preaching on Sunday in 1 Corinthians 15, that uh, Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried according to the scriptures and then rose on the third day. And, you know, we understand what the third day is on a number of levels, not just in terms of it actually affirming the first day of the week as being Sunday, but the inherent redemptive connotation of the number three applied both uh, ordinally and um, cardinally, and we'll be able to richly develop that as a, um, a means of exhortation for the people of God. So, I, you know, I'm glad you're tracking with me, and I, am, I appreciate the question, too, because I want, I want everybody that's joining us to be able to just, you know, get out their holes and their spades and with a heart that's interested in cultivating the redemptive realities of Christ, get at it. And, you know, once you get your work done in terms of uh, that seven-day Genesis narrative, send it over to me, okay? I will, Pastor. Thank you. All right, blessings. Let me see here. Let me go to, uh, what do we got, Ken? Okay, thanks. All right, let me go to line number uh, three for Travis from Berkeley. Travis, are you there? Uh, how you doing, Pastor Jesse? I'm good. What's up, bro? Um, so I just wanted to know, like, from a from a pastoral uh, place, how would you huh? encourage someone who actually has the coronavirus? Yeah, man, that's good. Yeah, that's good. And 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 I don't, you know, I think I would put it like this because we actually have had people who have died uh, on us from the coronavirus. And that's that's sad. So, you know, if, if you know, I'm look as a pastor, man, I, I'm encouraging people to believe in healing because it's always possible. Cause, and that's why we pray. And I definitely want to put the shout out right now while I'm talking to you, because God led you to do this uh, on. Uh, OK, got gotcha. you on uh, on tomorrow, Tuesday uh, at 630. I'll be teaching out of the book of Revelation uh, dealing with the principles of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But at 730, we have a live live stream prayer time. And I want to put that out to everybody now because I'll forget. So Travis just reminded me to if you want to join us in our prayer time, you can join us early the by emailing me at GBC Hayward at gmail.com lord lowercase gbc hayward at gmail.com if you got serious prayer requests serious concerns somebody's sick somebody in need of something start emailing me now or email me shortly before we get out of our study tomorrow and uh and and uh we can um 
we can take up those prayer requests when we start prayer at around 7.30 tomorrow evening. That would help out for a lot of you guys who might want to get in. Uh, Travis, this is what I'm going to say uh, before I take a break, is that I would I would encourage men and women to understand that if 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 the Lord doesn't isn't pleased to heal us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and it's to be healed in the ultimate sense of God's choice of healing can sometimes be healing the body or bringing us into his presence, which is an ultimate healing experience because healing is in his nature. He is Ra, He is Jehovah Rapha. God is the one that heals us, and healing is a consequence of communion and fellowship with God. So I would encourage people that are dealing with it to, to not despair if they know the Lord again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that if they know the Lord, to live is Christ and to die is gain, that God will have chosen for them to gain, to gain, to gain by taking us from this life. And to remember, one of the evidences and purposes of sickness is to let us know as believers that, you know, this is not our home and we haven't arrived yet and, uh, and, and we're probably all going to pass by some sickness or another, and we should embrace it if that's God's time for us to go home. Otherwise, passionately pray for healing, submit to all of the health methods that are required of that particular illness so that they can recover, and try to get into a community of believers who pray for one another. That's the big thing. I got to take a hard break, my brother. Thank you for that question. I hope to pick it up before I close today. Pray for one another. Let's pray for one another. We have to pray. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back. The time 6.50. We might be able to get a call or two in if you want to join us. one 367 Let's go to line four and talk with Lamont from San Lorenzo. Lamont, are you there? Greetings. How are you, Pastor? I'm good. What's going on, man? No, not much. Hey, uh, I just want to get your take on a particular verse that's been on my mind, and uh, mm-hmm. I've been looking at it. It's in Psalms, Psalms 94, verse 20. I'll read it off to you. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? And um, mm. I looked up the word frame, and the reason why... What drew me here is because of the sign of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I was just kind of looking at it lightly. I noticed that frame is the same word as in Isaiah uh, 29, uh, where it says, Shall the yeah. thing, thing form yeah. say to him that frameth, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I'm not at that scripture, so I can't quote it. No, I, I know it, though. I, I'm with you right there. Hold yeah. on now. Give me the, give me the verse again. Okay, that's Psalms 94 and verse 20. Right. So, yeah. No, go ahead on and, and talk your thoughts through. I'm with, I'm with you. We got, we got a good three, five minutes So on radio time. That's a long time. So what, 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 you, what you cooking up on that? <laughs> I was, uh, I got to learn how to yeah, okay, let me shut up. Um, you know, I, I was looking at, like, such scriptures as Romans 7, you know, the law of sin that is in our members. Uh, I had one in particular I want to uh, address, address or even ask you of in, Rome, in the context of Romans 7. But I was, I was considering that that uh, same law in the, in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's more represented, uh, translated as statute, mm-hmm. um, 
wouldn't that be the law of sin that is in our members? And was that what is sin referred to in Romans seven? Is that the same, like in Romans seven verse eight? And I'll read it for you. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, evil desire. For without the law, sin is dead. And it says in verse nine, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came. Sin revived, and I died. And I believe the first commandment that is known in the Scripture, besides let there be light, was the commandment given to Adam, uh, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sin coming in the occasion of the serpent and his lie to Eve um, wrought all manner of concupiscence in her mind. And in verse 6, you can see an, uh, a likeness of First John 2, verse 16, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, of which she uh, conceived, seeing that it was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, uh, leaving off, just in that thought, the wisdom of God that said, do not eat of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm making a relationship, or I'm seeing, I think I'm seeing a relationship between that law and the law that's... uh, spoken in Psalms 94 and I just want to get your take on it. Yeah, I would I would e- I would immediately frame it that way uh, in terms of the redemptive application of of the believer's awareness of the battle. Uh, right. you know, I pro- I probably would start working through this text in a more um a, a primary uh primary Christ uh Christ suffering Christ atonement paradigm and then make the application to us. Um, if I had if I had more time, because I know this is is messianic, this whole text. But in terms of immediate redemptive application, you're you're right you're right on on time. I would I would employ this in any kind of future application of the conflict. I mean, because the the conflict is universal that you and I know in this present redemptive age, where our bodies have not experienced uh, the adoption and liberation from the from the curse. And so yes. While our bodies are still operating out of the weak and beggarly elements of the world, sin has an occasion through um, our fallen nature and our sinful tendencies to rise up and wage war. What I love about this text that you're dealing with, which is uh, of actually, uh, you know, you could just use this as the premise for developing uh, what would be entitled the, the warfare uh, that the believer prevails in constantly the warfare that the believer prevails in constantly and it's premised upon a question shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with you and you know the answer is no i mean that's a rhetorical no because of the new nature that's within us otherwise it wouldn't be a battle it would be fellowship so it's not gonna it's not gonna it's not gonna it's not gonna define who i am it's not gonna uh it's not gonna determine my identity it's present, but we are uh, engaged in the war. And does it frame a mischief by a law? Absolutely. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 7. And for the person who does not uh, have the blessed, blessed, blessed uh, antagonism of the new nature existing within the sphere of that, that, uh, that civil war, 
he is going to succumb to Isaiah chapter 29 because Isaiah 29 verses 13 through 16 is underscoring the nation of Israel who basically defied, denied God in his glory uh, and then began to, you know, to go to war against the, the potter, telling him that he has no understanding. He doesn't know what he's doing in, in that which he made. For the true believer, we're, we're going to be very much uh, succumbing to the reality that Christ in us, the hope of glory, is really the the um, the uh, outcome of verse 21 and 22. If you listen to it carefully, they gathered themselves to, together against the soul of the righteous mm-hmm. and condemned innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense and my God is the rock of my refuge and he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord, God shall cut them off. Now, it's talking about the believer, but it's talking about Christ first and foremost in the believer as the grounds uh, and object of that battle and the ground and cause of our victory through him. And I know you can see that in verse 21 through 23. So Romans chapter 7 is a perfect parallel to this in that Paul concludes, as you know, um, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You know, uh, I thank God that, you know, uh, with with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the, you know, the law of sin and, uh, and that our deliverance comes through a who and not a method of what we do or what we can do, but through Jesus Christ. And so this is good language. Uh, you know, how I always encourage you, just frame it, frame it. Right, right. And then I just want to say two more things. One, I, I'm going to read from where it began, where the victory began for us. Um, uh, verse uh, Ephesians 2, and I'll read just a little bit. Ephesians 2, that's where it speaks about vessels of wrath. Uh, keeping on that, that word frame, uh, actually representing pottery, uh, the the action upon pottery. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Do you hear that? That sound, son? Oh, that's it, huh? <laughs> that conclusion. For now. Oh, okay. Bless well, you, Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.